morning and welcome into the show. It is Daniel Ortman coming to you live from the Dream Imaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call and all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in. We appreciate it. Hope you're having a great day, a great morning on this Tuesday, April the 28th. You know, every every time we we take a look at the U.S. Soccer Federation and we examine, you know, the the leadership struggles and those leadership struggles, you know, are are wide ranging and they cover a lot of different issues. So we're not talking about a lack of leadership in just one area or two areas. There is a there's a big lack of leadership across the board, which is indicative of of, of a few things. Number one, cultural leadership, right? So the the culture of the organization is bereft of great leadership. That's the first thing. The second thing is you 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 find that that the lack of leadership is vast. It is wide ranging. It it is not narrowly af- affecting one aspect of the game. So um for example, if you were to look at the the U.S. Soccer Federation and and take one issue, it doesn't matter what the issue is. You, you could say it's their legal strategies or a specific legal strategy. You could say, uh, looking at the federation, that it is um, how they've handled youth soccer and, and the development of youth soccer and youth soccer players in this country. And you could say, okay, hey, that's that's an issue, but 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 maybe it, it is maybe that's a preference, right? Maybe that is just something that they they have a different worldview than we do, right? So may, maybe that's just not a lack of leadership thing. Maybe it's narrowly focused. The problem here is when we look at the Federation, it is not a lack of leadership in one area. It is, it is across the spectrum. We're seeing the telltale signs of bad, poor, ineffective leadership. And if you want to know what some of those are, um, you can, you can, you can make a list. One of, one of the things that you will find in ineffective or poor leaders is bad communication or lack of communication. So it may be the way you're communicating. It may be the frequency in which you are communicating or not communicating it may be the the feedback loop involved in your communication. Are you talking to the necessary people, the right people to make decisions? Listening to people does not necessitate that you do what they want, but it does mean that you are allowing them to to provide feedback, to be involved in the process. If you are claiming to be a leader, because you have a title, which is which is another uh, really telltale sign of a poor leader. A poor leader relies on a title, not their actions. Because I have president next to my name, all of a sudden now I'm a leader. No, that's not true. You just have a title. If you are leading and you turn over your shoulder and no one's there, or... You turn over your shoulder and you see that those behind you are disgruntled, 
unhappy, frustrated, angry, apathetic, any of those, and it's wide-ranging, you're not a good leader. So another area that you see U.S. soccer struggle, communications, and, 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 and actually relying on titles versus actions, another area where you see this ineffective leadership or this lack of leadership is in the failing to hold themselves accountable. Andy Stanley said once about leadership that leadership is a stewardship. It is temporary and you're accountable. If you're not accountable as a leader, you're not a very good leader. You're an ineffective leader. You may be in charge. You may have power, but you're not a good leader. We confuse titles and positions with what we do, who we are. But those are just titles and positions. They, they do not necessarily mean that we're living up to that role, to that responsibility, that we're not following through with the actions. When you look at the U.S. Soccer Federation and you examine their decisions And these decisions don't go back a few weeks. They have been existing for a long time. There's a few things that we have to take into account. Number one, we have to take into account that the decisions are consistently leading us to a place of having issues in the Federation, cultural issues, legal issues, financial issues. And the other aspect that we have to see about the leadership and these issues is where are we going to find new leaders? If we're always looking to the same people that are one, two, or three steps of separation from the other, are we really bringing in new leadership? You see, I, I think that U.S. soccer made a, made a very, very grave mistake in 2018 when they elected Carlos Cordero as president of U.S. soccer. And the reason why I think they made a grave mistake is that there was a, a, a field of candidates. I was working with Eric Winalda and his candidacy, but there were other candidates as well that were running, many of which were not intimately involved with the day-to-day of the Federation. But Carlos Cordero had been around for a while. First as an independent director, then uh, he, he took on more and more roles, including overseeing some, some financial aspects. Then he became vice president. And then he became president in 2018. The whole time he was walking around saying, I'm going to deliver on transparency and accountability and we're going to do things better. We're going to make things better. Well, if things are going well, why are we needing to improve? And weren't you there the whole time? And this is the first we've heard from you. Actions matter, not titles. And where did we go 
to elect a new vice president once Carlos Cordero assumed the presidency. Cindy Parlo Cohn, who had been working within the Federation and as a member of the Athlete Council and then as an advisor to the Athlete Council, a position that doesn't exist, but she was given that position during the 2018 election. It's not on paper anywhere, but she was serving that role. And then she assumes the vice presidency unopposed. A little over a year later, she is reelected as vice president in a two-way race against John Mata. And then weeks later, assumes the presidency when Carlos Cordero resigns because of public pressure. This organization is severely lacking leadership, and it's also severely lacking fresh leaders, new leaders. Leaders that need to be brought in to lead and guide and change the way things are being done. Leaders that make a difference. This is what the Federation lacks. And it was, it was no more on display than some of the recent discoveries about one of the lawsuits. U.S. soccer is suing its very own foundation. And part of the lawsuit is that U.S. soccer took information from the foundation to use in the lawsuit that they were not supposed to have access to. How did they get the access? And where did the information come from? None other than Sunil Gulati. Well, why did he have the information? Because he served on both boards. This stuff has been happening for decades. And the membership and the country have been unaware and it's time to shine a spotlight on what we're really seeing here ineffective poor leadership bad leadership and we need new people with new ideas that are not beholden to don garber and his multiple million dollars he earns a year by getting to sit on his perch as the CEO of Soccer United Marketing and Commissioner of Major League Soccer with his no-bid contract with the Federation, serving on the same board, the nonprofit board that gets to make decisions that affects his business and his personal paycheck. That's not a good setup. There is nothing good about that scenario. When we look at U.S. soccer and we look at the way it's been run and the people involved and the ideas that keep getting retread, one thing is clear. Not much has changed in the weeks since Cindy Cohn became president and Will Wilson was elected CEO. They did cancel the DA, but how did that go down? 
without involving the membership, without hearing people out, without giving people a plan to go forward, without providing effective communication. We let rumors swirl throughout social media and clubs and conversations. And then we get to a place where we find out from a press release that the the DA is terminated effective immediately with nothing in its wake. That's not leadership. That's certainly not good leadership. And when we look at the Federation, this pattern has been repeated over and over and over again. The one job the Federation should be doing is providing administrative resources on connecting every club in a system of connected leagues and letting every club around the country be a Petri dish of soccer development at the professional level, amateur level, youth level. Let's see who's good at what they, what they claim to be good at. Let's see those who think they know how to train players and build players and, and build a club. Let's see them do it. These meaningless proclamations of elite and showcase and premier, etc., are just labels, no different than the label of a position like president, CEO, or board member. It's what we do in those roles and in those positions that should matter and actually does matter to you and to me, to every family in this country. Leadership matters. It's not a title. It's what we do. I hope going forward that as we look at all of these legal challenges facing U.S. soccer and all of the lack of leadership and lack of inclusion and lack of opportunity and lack of access, that the membership, those who have the ability to change things with their votes, really begin to look at how we can build a better American soccer How can we connect the dots and connect the clubs and connect the players so that more have opportunity, more have access, and everyone is included? Let's let creativity and ingenuity and the American spirit thrive in American soccer and watch the game when it's unleashed, surprise us all, in its amazing success and its ability to grow at scale much faster than the current leadership has ever dreamed. We can do this together. We can build this together if we could ever get our federation to focus on that task of making soccer in all of its forms the preeminent sport in America. Coming up after the break, we had a chance to uh, to speak with Robson Borba. Um, he is, you know, 
no one of consequence if you are um, a member of, of the U.S. Soccer Federation. He doesn't own a club. He doesn't coach in an, an academy. For most people, they would look at this guy as just a dad, a soccer dad. But Robson and his and his and in, in, in his family from Brazil. He has a perspective on the game that I think would be very helpful for us here in the, in America to look at and compare and contrast what he's seen here in America versus what he has seen even recently with his favorite club in Brazil. And that interview, uh, we had a chance to catch up with him the other day. That interview is coming up right after this message from DuckTickBrand.com. When you go there and you place an order and you get you a journal, you get you a planner, you, maybe you get something for, for your coach just to say thank you and we'll see you soon. Use promo code DWSHOW and you'll get 10% off of that order at DuckTickBrand.com. We'll be right back after this. tuning in and uh, I really appreciate it. Joining us on the show is Robson Borba. He is a he's a dad, he's a soccer dad, he's an avid football fanatic uh, from Brazil, transplant here in America who who loves the game, follows the game and um, put out a, an interesting tweet thread about his own experience and some of the the clubs in Brazil in his native country and wanted to bring him on to talk about some of that. Robson, welcome into the show. How are you today? Pretty good. How you doing, Daniel? I am doing well. Uh, thanks for asking. Um, you, you recently put out a tweet thread um, about a, a young player that was, um, you know, sold uh, to Europe and, and what that meant for 
the the ecosystem of of your club, your favorite club there in Brazil. And I, I just wanted to kind of bring you on the show to to give some color, provide uh, some context to that tweet thread, as well as um, you know the the byproducts, the opportunities that come out of being a club in an open and connected system where player movement like that is not just available but is rewarded. So, can you give us a little bit of uh, background? on uh on on that player and in, 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 in your club and and kind of yeah. you know how this how this kind of sparked an interest in you to, to kind of put out some thoughts on it yeah 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 first of all thanks for having me man you know i feel like we go way back even though i haven't met you personally and you know, i'll following you on twitter from the beginning jim and john and all those guys and seeing your show now like i'm really excited even to be part of it you know but uh, most of all, you know, my tweet was about um, uh, Ian Couto. He's a player from Curitiba Football Club. It's my hometown where I grew up, and my dad is a big fan, and of course, I was a fan. And uh, he just got sold from Manchester City, and if the bonus, everything worked out, it would be about six million pounds, which would be one of our biggest, you know, transfer for our club, one of the biggest uh, pl- player being sold. Only second to Hafinha, which plays in Bayern and other clubs, played in Barcelona. And, um, you know, to tie up everything, I was just thinking, you know, like when I moved here to America, uh, after many years, I was not even, I'm living in Minnesota right now. Many years, you know, just coaching my kids and working and playing in adult leagues, with a bunch of foreigners. Finally, I don't know what happened. I finally went to a Loons game back when they were in NASL, you know. And I went to the Loons game, and I had a blast up in Blaine, really small stadium, and second division soccer in America, my first exposure to it. And uh, that time, the Loons with Pablo Campos was doing so well. And I'm like, man, I solved the problem of soccer in America. Look at that. They're top of the division. They should be just promoted to the MLS. And there you go. You know, soccer is going to explode in the country. And I made a tweet about that. I don't know how many years ago was that. And uh, much worse than the YouTube rabbit hole, Ben, is the Twitter soccer rabbit hole, I'm telling you. <laughs> that was You're wild, right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that was just wild. It took me on. I never knew there's so many people for promotion and relegation in America, so many people, some people against it. And next thing I know, I'm tweeting with sport writers, with people, and debating. And, and for real, for me, it was a really pure. And uh, I'm like, man, this is awesome you know growing up in brazil uh second and third division we're all really connected you know we all have our first division clubs but we know a lot of the players you know they start in the second division they they start in small clubs and the whole player development ecosystem in brazil not only in brazil in the whole world to be really honest you know it's like it's it's really fun it's like fundamental to is vital to the soccer uh, to the first clubs, first, uh, you know, division clubs, and to the whole development of players in Brazil, you're talking about Cafu, Ronaldo, go on and on. Even in Chile, you know, Alexis Sanchez, there's a YouTube um, BBC documentary about Alexis Sanchez. Daniel, it's unbelievable, man. This tiny little town where it had a little professional team, super poor in Chile, and here comes Alexis Sanchez, makes it to... 
sold to a bigger team, you know, in Chile that goes to Europe and the rest, you know, the history and all the solidarity payment that that little club got every transfer that Alexis Sanchez had today that has this amazing facility where they're training the next Alexis Sanchez, much better conditions, you know? So, you know, that's the ecosystem for me. Like I grew up seeing that, you know, Cafu played so long in second division before they found them out after he was older, even, you know? And uh, so for me, that's kind of the thing, like the picture that I want to paint, you know, Ian Colto's 17 year old kid going to Man City now, all this money. And uh, my main question, it was like the main point of my tweet was, man, if Brazil, Chile, Paraguay, Uruguay can develop all those players, man, with so little resource where all their parents are poor, you know, the biggest obstacle for them is to get the money fair to ride the bus to the training facility. That is their biggest obstacle. You know, if you read the story about Marcelo that plays for Real Madrid, it was his grandpa taking him in a little VW bug and making all kinds of sacrifice to take him to practice. That's their obstacle. And then I look here in America, we have all these resources and, you know, our obstacle is much greater. You know, if a kid start being playing well, he goes to elite <laughs> where all the parents got to fork all this money because there's not a connectivity between clubs that develop kids connected to the professional level to uh you know to a body of soccer where there's first second third division player um where the players can be transferred and there's value to that you know so a little bit of my <laughs> long spill of <laughs> of my main heart of my tweet you know that's what it was well it, it, i want to get to that so your 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 favorite club is is not one of the the you know the biggest or most well known outside of the borders of Brazil club. They develop a player, and that player getting sold you know for six million pounds, six million euros, whatever the number works yeah. out to be, um, in a in an open market system, not only for the clubs but for player movement. What what does that amount of money do for your club there in Brazil, the club that you support, that that, that your dad supports? Uh, how how far does that money go, and and what does it help provide for a club in in that kind of uh, situation there in Brazil? Oh, Daniel, like I can't even tell you how vital that is. You know, our club. Um, for the, you know, last year we got relegated to second division. No, two seasons ago, we got relegated to second division. So there's a huge loss, you know, financial loss going from first to second with sponsors and, you know, revenue, everything, you know. So for a, for a club really to be relevant and be able to move forward back to the first division in our country, you know, um, when you ha- hit a gym like that, you know, like Ian Colto, where he's going to be sold for uh, 6 million euros. Sorry, I said pounds, but euros. Yeah. Uh, it's a huge shot in the arm for a club. You know, he's gonna, he's gonna, you know, the, I cannot even tell you like how vital it's going to be now for us to sustain ourselves in the first division and actually to try to make some noise that money, how is it going to go to player salary to, you know, to the club itself. So it's it's huge, you know, and also the fact that 
you know, here in America, you hear a lot like, oh, you know, the owners of MLS pay, pay all this money. Were they going to be relegated? How are you going to explain that to them, you know? But you see all over the world, you know, uh, any club is not immune to being relegated. If you start playing bad, if you don't administer well the club financially, investment on players, coaching staff, you know. But you see that's not the end, you know. When you have a, a, a connectivity, you know, in soccer, first, second, and third, you know, you go to second, you regroup, and if you are well, you know, managed, you can go back to first, and the opportunity is there. And that's why clubs are, you know, developing players are, you know, striving for a, a better fueled product, you know. So, yeah. So for me, I don't know. For me, I see that at first hand with my club in Brazil. And, you know, I even though I'm far away, I still follow so closely, you know, and I see the possibilities here. That's kind of it gets to me, you know, uh, my wife worked with uh, underprivileged schools in the inner city in Minneapolis. And so many kids, man, uh, Latino descent, African descent, you know, African-Americans even, that those kids love soccer, man. And there's some talents there, man. Physical, just skill level talent. But it gets you a certain age that, you know, there's nowhere to go. You know, parents cannot even take them, you know, to a club, much less pay for elite fees or anything like that, you know, versus when there's a professional club with interest and they know they can make money of a player that, you know, that changes the scenario, you know, I, I want to talk about that for, for a moment. The, the, the difference between looking at players and their families, um, as, as a income source, a revenue source from the families versus a, an investment, that could be a a revenue source down the road, like the player that your club just sold to to Man City for six million euros. Um, that amount of money um, means that we find a player. We're always looking for good players, uh, and and our view of players is that they are an investment. We're hoping that they obviously make it to our first team that they do well, they develop well. And ultimately um, maybe we're able to move on to some other clubs, some of these players and, and bring in some fees that help us to continue to build our club versus what we see here in America, which is that the family is, is paying up front and paying in a lot of cases for the very, uh, expensive travel programs, thousands of dollars per year. And, and you know, when you have that reversed where families are, are not looked at as investments, they're, they're looked at as, as revenue and income, direct revenue and income, um, how that affects the willingness of a club in a place like Minneapolis to, you know, go the extra mile. Maybe they find, you know, one, two, half a dozen, maybe a dozen kids who are just ballers, right? And they're, but, but, but they don't have the mean, they don't have the financial means. What's the incentive, the motive for that club to, to do anything with those players, to get them transportation, to, you know, pay for their, their development and, 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 
you know, be able to down the road, hopefully try to reap the rewards when there's nothing to get back. There are no solidarity payments. There are, there is no training compensation. Um, and, and they, they can't even sell the player on, uh, to a club. So, you know, when our current system doesn't, uh, operate that way, how does that have an effect on those kids in terms of a club having, you know, a, a, a reason to, to go the extra mile, to get them included, to get their, you know, operating fees and their transportation covered uh, when, when there's no payback on the end versus what your club is, uh, is doing on a regular basis down in Brazil. Yeah. You know, Daniel, you know, like, to really be able to like explain this so people like really hear and understand there's no other way but you first you got to understand that a soccer club must have a first a first team which is professional even amateur but is playing lower leagues could have played third division or only in brazil some clubs focus mainly in the state regional tournament with the chance to make it to a, you know, third or second division from there. Um, but first of all, a soccer club, the whole intent of a soccer club in most parts of the world, I would say 99% of the world is to field a first team that's semi-pro or pro. And by you fielding a pro team associated with the state soccer federation, you know, with the whole country federation, by being a pro team, if that player that you develop were to make it big, like Alexis Sanchez, if you see the story from the BBC documentary, you'll see it's a small little club, but they're a professional club. So that makes them uh, eligible for the pay, uh, payment solidarity, which, you know, if you're in the soccer world, you understand that every time a player gets a transfer, the club that developed him is going to get a small percent. I don't know if it's six, eight, ten percent or something like that of the contract, which it means huge. So, FIFA developed that so we could see more players being developed. And they understand that most players in Africa, you know, in South America, in so many other places, even Europe, you know, they do come from small clubs. They eventually make you a bigger club and they want to see that that continuous going, you know. So uh, I don't know. To really explain this, I want to use like examples that I know, you know. I live in Minneapolis right now. My son trained with a club called Alchemy. Uh, the main coach is uh, Jason Moura. He's from Brazil. He was a player for the Loons um, for Minnesota, you know, um, back when they were in NASL. He did a stand, and I think it was in Singapore. Anyhow, you know, not a, this huge star soccer player, but a player, professional player. Right. So he started, you know, him along uh, Donnie, another uh, guy that was involved with Minnesota United, you know, staff with the Loons. They started the soccer club, and I know they were looking to get into a team, you know, amateur team, like to have almost like a first team, you know, and I don't know, for fun, as investment, whatever. But if you think about it, if they, the club alchemy that my son trains for, which we got to pay, and it's really hard for us, you know, it's they do traveling kind of a more of advanced group of you know, elite players and, you know, we got to pay for that, go to Chicago here and there. It's, it's pretty hard, you know, for a blue collar dad and a teacher wife, you know, to afford that. But if you think about it, like if those guys could have fueled a semi-pro team uh, with aspiration, second or third division, 
where they do have a professional team here in Minnesota, their division, whatever it would be, you know, where there is hope, where the player now that, you know, whether my son or any other kid there, they start excelling, you know, in the future, they will receive money if the kid makes it big, you know. So that's the 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 goal with a professional team in a club, you know. You can feel that it's sometimes soccer can be almost like for owners more of a, a negative than the revenue, you know. It's passion, a lot of passion. Some of the clubs, clubs that run well in the world, it makes some money too, you know. They can make money, but you know, if you think about it, all of a sudden one kid hits gold makes it big Manchester United, whatever go on in the world to have a big salary. And now you have that solidarity payment back to this club. Think about how many more kids now they can invest. And now it totally shifts the paradigm. Now, now if they, they're going to be looking for the best kid in Minnesota, the best kid here in Minneapolis for the club, when they compare the transportation, they compare pay their, the tournament fees, the training, the coaching time with this kid, because they know if this kid makes it big, it's going to be a hundred times more the revenue that they can receive versus the reality here in America right now. They don't have that, you know, everything, there's no where to go with making a team. There's no advancing to from third division to second, even second, a shot to first division. Uh, there was no solidarity payment until now. They, I don't know how they're finagling things. You know, I haven't been kept up with, but there was nothing. You know, clubs would develop a player here, and they just left in the dust. So there, there is not that big incentive. That's the game changer. Versus right now, a club, their main revenue is us parents. You know, so a parent can pay a kid to play elite. They're gonna pay it, and they're gonna cater to that the trials are catered to the parents that actually can pay, you know, my kid can be as good as it can be, but if we cannot pay it, it's a snag that we had in the road and what we do now, you know? So you're not looking for the best player. You're looking for the available players. You're going to try to pitch sale for the parents. Why you got to train in our club, but it's a totally different mentality versus in the world. With, I don't care how poor or rich your kid is. We want to see the talent on the field. That's the kid that we want to train to take it to the next level. So that's the biggest difference for me, like why America really hasn't taken it off or you don't see player development. You know, you don't see a lot of young American guys making Ian Coulter move to Manchester City for 6 million uh, euros, you know? Uh, for me, that's what I see at least, you know? Well, in, in terms of the the orientation of the system, you're right. It is, it is not aligned with development and rewarding the development um and no matter you know as purists of competition uh, i don't know if you watched the uh the series on netflix the english game where they kind of talk about and cover in a dramatic uh series based on you know true events of uh, really the formation of professional football in England back in the late 18, 1800s. Um, but one of the things that, that I, I found kind of fascinating in the, um, in that series, and it's got, it, it kind of reminded me of this as you were talking is, you know, back before football came really professionalized in England, 
um, you know, this idea of just pure competition where we're, you know, we're, we're going to go out and play, but, but it was primarily a rich man sport in England. Um, that there were some blue collar teams, some working class teams, but they were, they were not really successful, uh, until the game started to get professionalized. And then the incentive went from, just participation, which is kind of what we have in the States, which is, you know, pay your money and just participate. Whatever happens, happens. So we're paying Mm -hmm. for access to programming versus when, when the money in the system aligns with development and rewarding the development, it should be no surprise that what we see is development. We see a focus on better football, better football players, better football matches, better football clubs, better football leagues. And and that builds on itself and those rewards find their ways into the clubs and the players and the coaches and the agents and the scouts who do good work where what we see in, in, in the U.S. Uh, at the youth level especially, but all the way to the top, is is a pay-to-play mentality. Even to get into Major League Soccer, you, you referenced this earlier in our interview about Minnesota winning uh, or leading in the division with the NASL and then not getting promoted to MLS. Um, you, you see that, that how that depresses the market in in the in the states where clubs are not able to to leverage uh, and 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 survive off of a focus on the sport, they have to find ways to fund their programming by turning to the families to pay them because they can't get money any other way. There's there is no TV revenue. There's there's no gate revenue. There's no uh, merchandise sales or concessions. There, there's no other form or factor that is paying the bills unless mom or dad or someone else pays the bills for a for a player to be able to uh, play the sport. So one of the questions I have for you as somebody who's from Brazil and, and you spent a considerable amount of time here in the States is to, I wanted to, to hear from you, a fan, a fan of the game from, uh, uh, in a country where, you know, people talk about the, the soul of the game, the, the joy of the game, you know, is, is, is something often, uh, used to describe, uh, football in Brazil the passion level as a fan, as a supporter of a club in Brazil, and and contrast that with what you see here in the states, at you know at your son's club, you know, is it the same level of passion? Is it the same level of commitment from the community, from the coaches, from the players, and the families as you know and have experienced in Brazil? Yeah, man, it's you know, it, it lacks here a connection like you said the community the word community you know like my club curitiba only it represents our town it's you know the name of the city i'm from is curitiba c-u-r-i-t-i-b-a and the club is c-o curitiba you know it's just change one letter that's how close it is to our community so that club the club is part of the city you know and and there's no First of all, you know, you don't see a, a, a in Brazil clubs don't move city like they do here. You know, there's no such a thing. 
if my club were to be run to the ground and go broke and bankrupt, that would be the end of it. But there's no such a thing as changing a franchise from one town to another because it's so connected. It's part of the fabric of the town. And also, like I said, my dad was a big fan and so gone. Half of my, my relatives and family cheers for Curitiba, the other for Atlético Paranaense. A Christmas party, oh my goodness, it's it's crazy, man, you know? <laughs> it's really cool because we talk so much trash to each other, and, you know, oh man, it gets pretty heated. But at the end of, you know, before the night's over, we all get together, take pictures, you know, half green and white t-shirts, the other black and red, you know? But, um, but you know, it's so the fabric of, you know, the soccer is like, you know, it's it's within the city, within the community, you know? So we take a lot of pride of, you know, if our, our our club develops a player, if it becomes big from our club, we always carry that, you know. Um, you know, Alex is the best player from Curitiba, you know, play for the national team, play in Turkey, Champions League. The guy is an amazing player, you know. And uh, to this day, we all are so proud of him and so many other players like that, you know. So, so there is that, you know, so you're, that's the thing, you know, if you put a club that's part of the city and I'll tell you, I don't know, from my experience here in Minnesota, when the Loons were the NASL and they were doing so well in the small little stadium, like for me, I love going to the games and you can feel the electricity and everything, you know, and, um, and it was sad that. I'd rather have them in a small little stadium moving to the first division with a team just to see what would happen and growing slowly versus in America, we think for a team to be in the first division has to have this big stadium. You know, the stadium is the main part of the reason why a team is in the first division, not the quality on the pitch, you know, and I think that's where it gets all missed out. You know, that's where, you know, as long as we don't put a quality on the field, the merit of playing, that's the main thing I had. You know, we're never going to see good teams, good players, you know. Um, in Brazil, everybody knows the story, the story of Chapecoense, you know, a tragic story about the plane falling down. But, you know, the whole thing that if you were to watch the special on Netflix about Chapecoense, you see the whole their story is not just about the tragedy. The story is amazing, man. It's a small town of Santa Catarina. It's a small state in Brazil. It would be compared to, you know, Iowa. I don't know. And you have this team that made from, we start jumping from fourth, third, second, first division from one year to another, you know. And when the accident happened, they were on the way to play to the final of the Sul Americana compared to the Europa League, you know. So they had amazing feet, you know, that the small town that nobody barely knows even in Brazil about Chapecoa, you know, and nobody cares ever to go there, you know, and this team made you glory, you know, just through merit on the field. And they didn't have to upgrade their stadium. They didn't have to do anything but win. That's the amazing part about it, you know. So, so yeah, to answer a long answer to your question is, you know, I think that's where the passion comes from. The passion comes from because they see kids that are in high school, kids that were young, making to those teams. And if they amount to something, it becomes, I mean, the whole town worships them, you know. I know because here in Buffalo, when I live in a small town outside Minneapolis, you know, the Twin Cities area, a little bit, 30 minutes west of the Twin City, it's a small town. 
when the high school boys won the basketball tournament, you should have seen the passion here because it's a, it's our home product, you know? And I think that's what's the missing link in America. You know, we need more of that, you know? In, in terms of, um, the, the feeling in and around club soccer that you've experienced here in America, can you give us a little bit of a contrast to what you've seen the the lack of passion or the the you know lack of interest uh, and buy-in from families it it, it uh, the, what i have observed is a lot of times you see families who will pay fees for programming they mm-hmm. they don't get an ownership stake in the club even though they've paid thousands of dollars they they don't even get membership into the club with a vote or or any kind of voting privileges for that money it's it's turned you know money turned over for my child to play in your club to cover the programming and and when when that time is over, maybe it's a summer break, maybe it's a winter break, maybe they've outgrown the program in terms of age, then we're done. Like it's, you know, we don't really have a relationship anymore with the club. We've, we, we have paid the club. The club has, you know, lived off of our fees, but it's a very transactional relationship between the American family and the American club rather than a lifelong uh, passionate relationship between someone like yourself and the club that you support in Brazil. Can you talk a little bit about what you've observed in that kind of ecosystem and relationship between American families and American clubs? Yeah. You know, um, my experience, you know, like a year as a, cause I'm, I am one of the parents that pay for my son to train and, you know, take him, you know, to the club there. And I'm, I see myself as a customer, tell really the truth, you know, what can the club do for us and what we can do for the club is pay the fee or volunteer or do this or that, you know? So it is a very transactional thing. I agree with you. Um, my other side of the spectrum and this also is being a coach, you know, I coach my youngest boy almost his whole career, you know, probably not the best thing, but in the town where we lived, there was not much option. There was no other you know, resources here, you know, and between me and a dad that only played basketball or football, you know, (laughs) I'll vote for myself any day, you know, I'm playing soccer all my life. But as a coach too, you know, I had a wonderful relationship with most of the parents and, and, you know, there was a connection, you know, uh, of the parents being excited when their team was doing well and, you know, and, um, but again, you know, it's, I think the end product, what's always missing is, you know, the pot of gold in the end, you know, if a club were to have a first team or the kids that I was training, their goal was try to make some of the kids to that team where, you know, they're going to play in the first team. Now we're going to watch them in the city stadium. Now, you know, that would be the pride of, of us developing the player, but the pot of gold, there's not really, you know, it's, you know, um, Probably I coach one of the kids that I coach and now he's going to go to college and a scholarship. So, yay. But, you know, there's the connection. I think could it be much greater if if we're if our club in the town here was not even maybe a professional club, but it was participating in state tournament and a regional tournament, you know, um, that could be maybe 
and go to a third or second division in American soccer. You know, if there's something like that, I think that would be a much bigger connect, you know, with the players, with the parents, with the whole soccer fan um, in general than what it is now where we do feel like just, you know, a customer, which is true, you know, you're very right about that. It's a transaction, you know, and the end inside is very, you know, there's not really good end inside, you know, but when I try to put all my effort and money for my kid to try to be a professional soccer in America, I mean, the, the gate's very narrow to, to go to the top, you know, versus the rest of the world is a really wide gate. At least you get your feet in it. And then see how far you can you take it. Here is very narrow for you to get in to begin with, you know. Yeah, I mean that is another aspect. I think people don't uh, realize is the lack of opportunities in this country. Uh, we get caught up in fees and in in pricing people out, and and that is certainly a big problem in our system. But another big byproduct that is a problem is the amount of opportunities. When when you don't, for a country this size, don't have enough professional teams littered throughout the country, uh, covering you know every state uh, and having you know dozens and dozens of professional clubs, not just a couple dozen playing in major league soccer and then a couple dozen more, uh, you know, spread around between, you know, the USL and NISA. There's that's, that's not enough, uh, clubs there. There's not enough club operations to really, you know, even make a dent in, uh, player development, finding and developing uh, good enough players. I mean, we're completely, even when the development academy system that U.S. soccer recently terminated, uh, even when it was up and operational, there were there were entire states in the country that were still locked out of that system. So it's, it's not as if we have inclusion and opportunity baked into the U.S. soccer system. It's very exclusionary. It, it is not just exclusionary from a financial standpoint for a lot of people, it's exclusionary from a geographic standpoint. And, you know, it's America. I don't understand why we don't embrace uh, opportunity and ingenuity and creativity and entrepreneurism in, in the game uh, of soccer and in, 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 in American sports in general. You know, why couldn't Toledo, Ohio, uh, create a, an incredible football club that that could compete at the highest level. I mean, who's to say they couldn't if they were allowed to? Or, you know, Knoxville, Tennessee, um, you know, Jackson, Mississippi, New Orleans, Louisiana. I mean, you, you look all over the country at, at cities some of these cities already have professional teams uh, in in different sports at different levels. Some at, at the top of the uh, of the heap, like a New Orleans that has the NFL and the NBA, and they don't have any professional soccer in the state of Louisiana yeah. or in the city of New Orleans. And it's it's insane to me that uh, that that there are defenders of this system saying lock people out, reduce the opportunities, and that gets us to quality. Uh, last question for you is, is, is you, yeah. as you look at this, you're laughing in the background. How important is it for the country of Brazil to be able to, to, to be the 
you know, the, the footballing powerhouse that it is for the entire country to have access and opportunity versus things being locked down, reduced, all in the effort to quote unquote seek out excellence. Man, it's it's it goes like yeah, for me to explain it almost like ties it up, you know, with our almost social justice, you know, because in Brazil, if you were to lock out the small teams, especially from the northeast of Brazil, it's a poor region in Brazil. Some parts in the countryside of Brazil that, you know, that are smaller and poor, that would be a total uh, affront on the social fabric and social justice of, you know, go back to what we're talking about in England, about being the elite game, you know, instead of the people's game, you know. Pelé, Garrincha, Ronaldo, all those players, they were poor. They're from the slums. You know, and that's why we take pride of it, being an open system, you know, where there's opportunity for any club. It creates opportunity for most players. You know, here in America, you're, you know, telling me all those cities, why they don't have opportunity. The one that comes to mind to me, and I almost want to make a point someday to visit, is uh, Chattanooga. Man, there's soccer club there, I'm telling you. I'm excited one day to go watch a soccer game in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And if you're not in Twitter soccer, you never heard about those guys, man. But they have a soccer team there, and they're passionate about it. And how cool would it be if all of a sudden this small town from Tennessee, you know, Chattanooga, would make it to the main first uh, division in soccer in America and make a splash, you know? All these homegrown players from, you know, the middle of America where nobody ever heard of it. Uh, that would be amazing, man. I think it would be a, a Cinderella story that don't tell me that we, we're not crazy about Cinderella stories. We all watch March Madness every year, you know, attend, you know, we're, and what makes more exciting about the tournaments, all the Cinderella story, you know, uh, Chapecoense in Brazil is a Cinderella story. And unfortunately, Chattanooga does not have opportunity like Chapecoense in Brazil to be the Cinderella story, you know. And you're right. When you narrow the gate and the ex- access to first division is very limited in a country the size of America, we just handicapped ourselves. We just shot ourselves in the foot. And we are pretty much, you know, our worst enemy of this country becoming a great soccer nation. And when I say that, people are like, oh, my gosh, in Brazil, people are crazy about soccer. Don't even tell me here in America they're not crazy. But here's the thing, like. We don't need big stadiums right off the guilt goal, you know. Um, I think, in my opinion, it should let it grow organically, you know. I don't think it would be nothing wrong if a team like Chattanooga or if the Minnesota United back then when they had this small stadium were to make to first division. You know, the game would be on TV. That's one of the biggest revenue, you know, more than the gate itself. And And then when they're in the first division, make the first division money, the stadium will grow with it. Versus here in America, we're doing backwards where we need the stadium, we need everything before they can be in first division, you know. So by doing that, we're limiting, you know, all the small towns, all the Cinderella story, all this player development that could be happening. And it would take years to get where we like to get, of course, you know, it's not all a pipe dream. It's going to happen overnight. But I believe if soccer were to grow organically here, 
like a business in the open market, it would revenue before you can join the first division. Versus, you know, in Brazil, if we were to do that, I mean, I think the country would have burned because all the small towns with the small teams that if they can play and you're going to tell them they cannot participate in the big dance, even though they can kick her butt on the field, that would be a revolt there. The whole country would have burned. <laughs> it would be total chaos, you know. You know, we, so, the, you know, the game has grown worldwide organically. That's how it grows, you know, like a small club, put a, we're able to develop players, buy players, invest in the right way, and they go to the next phase. Chapecoense went jumping from, you know, uh, fourth, third, second, first division year by year just by their excellent work. And that's what made the story so big. And that's exactly how you grow organically. You don't put the stadium ahead. You don't put anything, but you let the quality on the pitch talk. And, you know, you see a small team like that making it big. Everybody becomes a fan. We all love the Cinderella story here everywhere in the world, especially in America, you know. Um, so that's what I believe, you know, U.S. soccer could have grow maybe slower, but much stronger if, you know, there is a pathway to the first division through merit of playing. Let a small team, a small city, you know, show up and and create a huge buzz with the American players, with a couple foreigners, whatever, how they can muster to get to the next level. I think it would open, first of all, for investment, you know, people will invest, you know, um, they will, they'll see the excitement and there are investors in America right now, you know, people that want to put money in the soccer, but they, they don't even have a turn. So for me, that's just crazy. You know, it's sad that to see so handicapped and so, you know, um, so much barriers, you know, so controlled in a sense. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And Robson, I, I really appreciate you spending time with us and uh, giving us your thoughts about uh, and your perspective about, you know, being from Brazil and, and, and what you've witnessed uh, in one of the footballing capitals of the world, one of the footballing countries of the world in Brazil, and what you've seen here in the States. We appreciate that perspective, and we appreciate you spending time with us on the show today. Uh, we, we'd love to have you back on again in the future, maybe talk about a future transfer or some other aspect of growing up in, in Brazil with Brazilian roots as well. I think it would be enlightening for our community and our audience. So uh, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Hey, thank you, Daniel. My pleasure, man. I'm really happy to be here. So thank you very much. Thank you. That is Robson Borba. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs with algae with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them, it changes everything. Now you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. 
There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Big thanks to uh, Robson Borba for uh, doing that interview with us uh, the other day, and i um, glad we were able to bring that to you today. Just really appreciate getting his perspective, growing up in a different culture, and then seeing things play out here in America. Um, if we ever get to this place where we unleash our potential, hold on, because we will become a global power in the, in the sport of soccer. Thanks for watching the show. As always, you can watch at DanielWertman.com forward slash watch. We'll see you again tomorrow.